Hello, everybody. This is Tom Merrill. Uh, I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Marsh, and this is the podcast Politics and the Humanities. This is a podcast from American University in which we talk about liberal education, books, and ideas. Um, Sarah, why don't you say hi? Hey, folks. Uh, hope you all are doing well. Tom, how are you? Uh, I'm fine. Uh, enjoying the uh, winter break, such as it is. Such as it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so our, our topic today is what the 1619 Project got wrong and what it got right. Uh, and we want to talk about both of those things. But Sarah, would you like to introduce the 1619 Project for listeners who might not be familiar with it? Sure thing. So uh, I think as many folks will will know, um, maybe maybe some folks not, but in the summer of 2019, the New York Times started um, a journalism project called the 1619 Project. And the purpose of that initiative was to place the history of slavery and racism um, at the center of the history of the United States. And one of the ways that the Times proposed doing this work was to suggest an alternative founding date for the country in 1619, as opposed to the founding of 1776 and Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. And uh, the 1619 date is important, the New York Times points out, because that is the year when the first African-descended people were landed in the colony of Virginia. Uh, and the record seems to suggest sold into slavery. And historians agree that the labor condition of the Africans who were landed at Point Comfort was indeed uh, of enslaved people. There's some disagreement, but most historians think that they were enslaved. And the point of the New York Times situating 1619 as this important date is to think about slavery as a significant part of the founding of the country. Right. And uh, the, I mean, just to review the, the state of events up until now, it, it was not met uh, without controversy. That's right. There were a number of historians who, who objected to uh, the claims of the project. Um, there were, I think there are four big claims, right, Tom, that the project makes that have come under uh, scrutiny from historians. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we should say, like we, uh, you know, as we're read things in the media, but we also work on these things. And that's one of the reasons why we thought it was worthwhile for us to take the time on the podcast to talk some of these things through. Um, but the, the controversies, as I understand them, and you, you correct me, Sarah, if I'm, if I'm wrong, sure. one was just the most obvious one about uh, is, is the country best understood in terms of 1619 or in terms of 1776? Right. Um, another was a controversy about um, the reasons why the colonists rebelled against Great Britain in 1776 and the claim of the 1619 project was um, contra what many of us were taught in school, that um, many of us were taught that that uh, the colonists rebelled in, in order to uh, affirm their own freedom. Um, the 1619 project claims that, that the colonists, many of the colonists or some of the colonists uh, rebelled in order to, to preserve slavery. And that's one that we're going to talk about more um, for the rest of the podcast. And the other two controversies, one, one was a, a claim about um, the roots of capitalism in slavery. 
And then uh, the fourth was a, a claim about uh, Abraham Lincoln and about uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, racial views, and in particular, his views about colonization. That's right. And um, I think we're going to try to uh, shelve uh, several of those. Um, the, I mean, the, the big one about 1619 versus 1776, that's not really a historical debate, I think. No, no, that's more of a question about the identity of the country uh, and, and what we think the country is about. And uh, certainly it's something something we can discuss and, and sort of debate with one another. Um, and, and I think that conversation has been going on uh, in, the, in the public sphere and, and also among historians. Um, but I think the thing we're going to focus on today, right, Tom, is the claim about the American Revolution. Yeah, and and uh, and I guess you know we should. I, I just want to say a little bit about you know overall estimate of the sixteen nineteen project, and you you have views on this as well. Um, I guess my my impression. So there's a lot in the sixteen nineteen project that I agree with. There's a lot that's just undeniably true, and there's one thing that I want to single out as being important and worthy of praise in the sixteen nineteen project, mm-hmm. which is that the project is really trying to center. Uh, what you might think of as black moral agency, right? Mm-hmm. The, the contributions of uh, black people, and in, in particular, uh, formerly enslaved or descendants of formerly enslaved persons, to the the history of the country, and I just that strikes me as such a profound point that that it's really worth emphasizing and holding up as as a kind of example of something that should be built on rather than than criticized. I agree that that is the most important accomplishment of the project to date. And I, I should also say that as a person who studies the, the 18th century and the very tail end of the 17th century, it was really important for me to see the 1619 date in print and to see the, the public attention oriented toward that earlier frame for the founding of the country. Uh, I think a lot of the time when we try to understand race relations in the United States, we tend to look to the American Civil War, and it's not a mystery why people do that. Uh, But I do think that focusing on the earlier period, focusing on the period of the revolution, and focusing on the beginning of chattel slavery in the 17th century is absolutely vitally important to understanding contemporary racial politics. And so as a person who is engaged with that earlier frame, I was, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of say, I was amazed really to see that earlier date in print and very excited that the conversation was, was finally turning um, in that way to sort of reckon with that deep history. And, and we should say that that uh, this is uh, where a lot of your own scholarship is. It is, yeah. So I mean, Tom and I decided that we wanted to talk about this because we we each have done work um, in related work um, on this question. Tom's focus is on the founding itself. A lot of work on Thomas Jefferson's political thought. I tend to approach the question uh, as a person who's trained in British literature, I tend to approach the question from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm interested in the elements of uh, British culture that, that made way for the transatlantic slave trade and that made the establishment of chattel slavery possible. 
in the Western Atlantic colonies. So those are our, I think, our various attitudes of approach here. Right, right. Uh, so there, there are parts of uh, the 1619 project that that are undeniably true and that that are good and and are contributions. Uh, but you know that sentence has a but coming, right? Yeah, but, it does. It does. But, um, I mean, there's been big controversy, and and um, and of course we live in a very polarized time, and and you know this is Americans' favorite activity is getting angry at each other about <laughs> uh, things that um, you know maybe one doesn't have to get angry over each other about. But um, so let's talk about this this controversy over the the claim about the American Revolution because that's that's the one that I know the most about and that I have opinions about. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to review what the controversy was? Sure. So the claim of the opening essay of the 1619 Project uh, by Nicole Hannah-Jones makes the claim that the American Revolution was fought in response, in part in response to British abolitionism and the interest of American colonists in protecting the institution of slavery from anti-slavery politics in Britain. And I think that's the the frame, right, for what we're going to do today, Tom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to talk about that claim. Um, and I guess the, the, you know, the historians and I'm thinking here of people like uh, Gordon Wood and Sean Wilentz, um, who have both criticized this in public. Um, I, I mean that their basic response on this particular point is, well, that's, that's just not true. Or at least that's, that's very much over reading some pieces of evidence that um, if you look at the entire context, um, really looks like a, a an overreading of of evidence rather than than sort of an honest accounting of of what um, you know what's there. That's how I understand it too. I mean, the African American historian uh, Leslie M. Harris also has published uh, in response to the 1619 Project, and Harris was recruited by the Times to fact check the opening essay and. Uh, vigorously disputed the claim about the revolution itself. And so one of the things that is is hard um, is that her objections seem to have gotten lost somewhere in the editorial process. And you know, for me, as a, as a reader and as someone who cares about this history a lot, it's frustrating because it can tend to expose this project to uh, to dismissal to claims of of being illegitimate revisionist history, which you know sadly is is what's happened in in some quarters. So I think you know working through the nature of the objections is important. And the Times responded um, after um, these historians publicly called into question that particular claim, uh, the New York Times did respond and we should go through their response, Tom, right? Yeah. Can, can I say something, just to give my reaction to this whole thing? Sure. I mean, um, so as somebody who, who um, spent a long time thinking about um, Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence and, and this time period, I mean, this claim in particular, um, I mean, it made me angry, right? And the reason it made me angry was not that I disagree with the overall thrust of the project, um, but that it it seemed like they had taken something that was um, sort of thinly sourced, yeah. and they blew it up into this sort of big reveal. And it, and it and it felt like it was meant to be provocative, like it was meant to be 
one of those um, things like everybody thinks that you know this about the world, but actually the opposite is opposite true. It's true, right? In, in the context in which, like, there are literally a thousand other things that you could have said that would have been um, equally troubling from the point of view of racial justice about the American founding. Yeah. That would have been easy layups that nobody could have said, well, that's not true. Right. Right. And, and we'll talk about some of these things as we go. But it felt like this was um, designed to be a kind of um, provocation more than it was, you know, let's try to be just frank about what, what actually happened. And that, that's the thing that, and so now we're, you know, the, the whole conversation is sort of deadlocked in, um, can, you know, claim and counterclaim. And it, and it feels sad and frustrating that we're not really able to have the conversation that we should have. Well, that, that to me is the, the tragedy of, of the way the, uh, the way that claim is made because it's vitally important for us to ask ourselves what is important about 1619 and what is important about 1776 and how those dates are related to one another because they are. And right. I think this sort of like surface level controversy about this one claim has made it very hard for the public attention to be directed toward other questions about racial injustice that should absolutely concern thinking people. Yeah. And so I, I have to confess that I, I have a little bit of a dog in this fight in the sense that I published, I'm, I'm in print with a claim that is uh, at least structurally similar to the claim similar. of the 1619 project. Tom, and uh, I don't want to be that essay. I don't want to be that guy who's like, you know, well, if you'd only read my essay, um, but I think my essay was pretty good. And I think that I, I got closer to the reality than, than the 1619 project did. So that's partly why I wanted to talk about this. And as a critical reader of, of the New York times and you know, of your work, Tom, I, I found the nuance of the claims that you're making about Jefferson to be unsettling and troubling and important in the way that I want the 1619 project to also be unsettling and troubling and important because there is a very there's a very central question about the role of race in slavery that a lot of Americans don't engage with and I I think that it's important for us to start having the conversation not just in academic circles but in public schools and, you know, in high school programs. And it seems incumbent upon the people right. who do this work at the university to be the engines of that conversation. Right. And and we just need to admit America is a messed up place and we need to talk about that. Right. We, we need do. To talk about all parts, warts and all, as we, as we say. So mm -hmm. I, I, we should say, um, and we'll put this in the, um, you know, we'll put the links in the, in the description for this episode. But uh, when we're talking about um, at least my work, um, since we're tooting my horn here, um, uh, there are two essays, one that was published in an edited volume that I did with uh, my friends and colleagues, uh, Alan Levine and, and James Stoner, called The Political Thought of the Civil War that was published by uh, Kansas University Press. Um, and I have a Jefferson, an, an essay on Jefferson there. And then I also published an essay in 2019 in a journal called Political Science Reviewer, um, which is also about Jefferson, but a different angle on this, this story. So if people are interested, they should look those things up. Um, and of course, if people want to correspond over email or something, I'm happy to talk about things. But th those are the, the things that we're referring to here. 
And we're going to, to work our way as we talk here into uh, a thorough unwinding of some of those arguments, right, Tom? We're going to get to go through those in detail with you now, right? Yeah. 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 Um, maybe we should start with the, the things that the 1690 or that the New York Times said in response to the historians. Because yeah. I think they pointed to things that were true facts that that's, you know, if you, a person is going to be critical, that a person needs to acknowledge. So um, do you want to remind us of what those were? Sure. And, you know, I think it's also worth saying that the New York Times has also modeled a certain kind of responsiveness that is central to the way that academics do work and the way they talk to one another. And, you know, academics get stuff wrong. And whenever we whenever we have the wrong ideas about about the past, often our colleagues can help us understand better how we've gotten it wrong. And so I think part of part of the conversation today is modeling that sort of productive disagreement, right? Not just saying that's that's bad and wrong and we should never think about it again. Um, rather to sort of try to get to the better answer. And so the way that the New York Times responded to the critiques of the historians was to point out two important episodes that precede the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Uh, And the first is the Somerset case of, of 1772. And the second- To remind, right, so, so the New York Times wants to say that there that the colonists were afraid of British a- abolitionism. That's right. So they wanted to leave the British Empire in order to preserve slavery. Right. And the revolution was necessary to basically insulate the colonies from that political movement. Um, and so the two episodes the Times points to as these sort of abolitionist encroachments on the colonies from Great Britain um, are the Somerset decision of 1772 and Lord Dunmore's proclamation of, of 1775. And you actually work on the Somerset decision. Yeah, so I, I know something about the Somerset case. And just really quickly for folks who don't know what it is, uh, James Somerset was an enslaved man who lived uh, with his owner in colonial Virginia, and his owner was named Charles Stewart. And in the 1760s, uh, Charles Stewart was leaving his post as a colonial customs officer and returning to London. And he took James Somerset with him to London when he went home. After the two had lived in London for a while, James Somerset ran away and he he remained in London hiding for several weeks until he was found by slave catchers whom Charles Stewart had employed to catch him. And those slave catchers put him on a ship that was bound for Jamaica. And Charles Stewart, again, this is the enslaver of James Somerset, Charles Stewart instructed the captain of that ship to sell James Somerset back into slavery in Jamaica. But the thing is, James Somerset had gotten baptized in London after he arrived there. And he had three godparents who filed for a writ of habeas corpus in the king's bench, right, which is a legal order that says you can't just hold somebody indefinitely. You have to make sure that their detention is lawful. And so uh, Charles, or sorry, James Somerset's godparents um, filed this writ of habeas corpus, and uh, a jurist named Lord Chief Justice Mansfield 
heard the case in early 1772 and decided that it was not lawful for Charles Stewart to hold James Somerset on this ship in order to sell him into slavery in Jamaica. And so the, the sort of outcome of the case is that the, the British common law is not compatible, Mansfield says, uh, with the transatlantic slave trade. Um, it, wait, is that uh, so? I guess my understanding was that it's it's not com- it, uh, that the uh, Mansfield decision says you can't have a person in slavery on British soil. Does so, it, does it also, say that you can't you can't buy and sell human beings. So this is the really important wrinkle about Somerset because the decision was extremely narrowly tailored. That a lot of abolitionists during the period responded to the case by saying now all the slaves in England are free, but that's not actually what Mansfield said. Mansfield only made it illegal for a person to be sold out of the country or forcibly Mm. removed from the country, as I think how it's often written. So there were enslaved people who lived in England who were not just made free by this decision. Um, It was extremely narrowly tailored. Um, And it it did not extend beyond England, which is, I think, one of the things the New York Times gets wrong when it points to Somerset as this uh, this evidence that British abolitionism was encroaching uh, on the uh, the North the North American colonies. I mean, I mean, Britain did not, for example, abolish slavery in its other colonies, right? So the colonies in North America are not the only British colonies. Right. So Britain has colonies on the North American continent as well as in the Caribbean. And Somerset did not free all the slaves in England. Somerset did not free the slaves in North America. And Somerset did not free the slaves in the Caribbean. In fact, legal historians tend to think that the Somerset case actually made it easier for slavery to continue um, in the colonies because the effect was to to sever the legal cultures and say that, well, you can't really buy and sell people in England, but you still can buy and sell people in British North America and the British Caribbean. And so it sort of tended to throw fuel on the fire of chattel slavery in the Western Atlantic. Right. And, and Britain actually doesn't even abolish the slave trade until quite a bit later. No, it's much later. So the slave trade is not abolished until 1807. And the institution of chattel slavery itself is not abolished until the 1830s. So a good long while after the American Revolution. Now, I mean, it's possible that Americans, I mean, Americans did hear about the Somerset case and it's possible that they were, you know, thought, well, maybe the wind is heading in that direction. Of course. But, um, but it doesn't It doesn't seem like there's, I mean, it seems like there's a lot more anti-slavery feeling in the, in the colonies at that time, from what I understand from the historians, yeah. than it does in Great Britain. Yeah. I mean, it's not until the 1780s that the first society for the abolition of the slave trade is formed in London. And there are anti-slavery societies in the North American colonies before that. Yeah. Yeah. So we should and um, uh, we should talk about the other piece of evidence that the New York Times brings, which is the Lord Dunmore's proclamation of right. 1775. Right. So Lord Dunmore, um, I think 
people tend to know about this now because of the 1619 project. But in 1775, issued a proclamation in Virginia that enslaved people who left the, the plantations of their enslavers and joined the British army against the American rebellion would be freed. And there was a, a regiment uh, that was formed uh, of African descended people. They were, I think they were called the, the Ethiopian regiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. they, they wore uniforms that were emblazoned with insignia that said freedom to slaves. And um, this, you know, this was a real thing that happened in, in Virginia. And, you know, Tom, I don't know if, if it reached beyond Virginia, um, if other enslaved people would have known about this call, it seems likely that they might've. I think that's that's probably true, and, and there you know, there are books on this, right? That that one could consult, right? There's one that I have on my shelf called "Black Patriots and Loyalists," and and it's useful to remember that that um, you know life is not a story of good guys and bad guys, and that and that um, uh, enslaved persons at that time might well have had sympathies with the British. Um, so it's you know there are moral ambiguities all over the place, but it, all of that said, it would be false to say that. Lord Dunmore was some kind of abolitionist or that there was a consistent and sustained plan to actually free enslaved persons? No, no. I mean, Dunmore's proclamation in 1775 seems to have been calculated to put pressure on on slaveholders in the colonies who were part of the rebellion uh, by by threatening them with the loss of their human property and also amassing uh, a larger military force against them. I mean, Lord Dunmore, as you said, Tom, is not an abolitionist. Lord Dunmore owns slaves. Uh, and so it's not as if this was a programmatic attempt on on the part of the British empire to it's certainly not a moral crusade it was, it was not an act of a, no rail not, politique no it was it was absolutely a shrewd political calculation to put pressure uh, on slaveholders and i think especially slaveholders in the american south because there's a there's a demographics issue that we should talk about uh there are larger numbers of enslaved people in the American right. South during this period because of the agricultural right. markets. And at all, at all periods. And at all yes. periods, right, right. And um, because of the, of the cash crops that are extremely labor intensive to cultivate. Uh, the same is true in the Caribbean with a sugar market. Right. And right. so whenever Lord Dunmore issues his proclamation, he is, uh, I think, playing on the well-founded fears that slaveholders had that their slaves would rise up against them and revolt. Sure. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And well, I mean, so I guess just to think about the, the, the political question, right. Um, it, so it may well have been the case that there were some slaveholders in 1775 and 1776 who said this Dunmore guy is, is threatening to free our slaves. We, we absolutely have to get on the train of revolution right now. Right. right? So we don't mean to deny that. But it is also true that like the the impetus for revolution has been going on for many years by the time that you get to 1775. Right. It's been going on for many years. And it's also, I think, suggestive that independence is not declared in 1775. It takes them a few months more to get the argument together and, right. and to get broad support um, for for the declaration. And so the relationship between Dunmore in 1775 
and the Declaration of Independence in 1776. I mean, there has to be some relationship there, but it's not the necessarily the direct causal thing that perhaps the New York Times is suggesting. I think there's it's it's just much more complicated than that. Well, so we need to put another card on the table here, which is that it actually shows up, Lord Dunmore, in a way, shows up in the Declaration of Independence, or at least Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence. That's right. That's right. right. And so now we're, we're getting to things that, that I've written about. Um, so, so can we turn to the Declaration of Independence? Yeah, so every, there's an official version, right, that everyone knows that you that our listeners probably read in high school or, or at other times in their lives. But there's also what I like to call the track changes version mm-hmm. <laughs> that Jefferson preserved of his original draft. And so you can find it uh, in you know various texts, um, but where he, he has all the bits that were left out and then all the parts that were added because it's a committee document. It's not just Thomas Jefferson talking on his own. Right. Right. And so there is this paragraph that that is about slave revolts, right? That we should read and we should talk about. Um, can I, I? I'm going to ask you to read it, but maybe I can set it up before we get there. Um, so er, you, you may remember, I'm sure, Sarah, you remember, our listeners may remember that the the Declaration is uh, has a structure of three parts. That mm-hmm. the first part is what you might think of as the theoretical premises or the the big claims about political theory and natural rights. All men are created equal. That's the part that most of us spend most of our time thinking about when we think about the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And then there's the long, um, I think the only way to say this, the long boring bit in the middle <laughs> where they go through the uh, the list of grievances against George III. Right. And that seems very, you know, um, historically limited, right? It's only about the situation in 1776. And so we normally skip it. Um, and then there's a final section in which they actually declare independence, which is the, the point of the whole document. Mm-hmm. We're talking now about that bit in the middle, the list of grievances. That's right. And, and there was yeah. one that didn't make the final cut. There's one that didn't make the final cut. And it's very interesting. So if you look at the list of grievances and you read it closely, you will see that that it, it goes from the less um, dangerous, the less grievous grievances, uh, all the way up to the most serious ones. And right. so there's a kind of a crescendo where you're you're heading up towards the worst one. And as you get closer to the end, the, the grievances become things like um, the British are impressing Americans uh, on the high seas and forcing them to go to war against their countrymen. Right. Right. So that, that it's forcing people to do uh, to harm people that are actually um, their their kinsmen in some ways. Right. Right. So it's that moral dilemma that I think is, is the crucial context. For, right. And that, and that sort of incre- the, the rhetorical design of that part of the declaration is to, is to sort of increase the seriousness of these offenses as we go on. Is that right, Tom? Right. Yes, that's right. And, and this one that you're about to read um, is the, is the crown jewel, of the grievances, at least in Jefferson's draft. Right. So this is right. the most, this is the most serious allegation Jefferson exactly. could think of to, to levy against King George III, right? Right. Yes. Okay. So would you like to read it for us? Sure. He, King George III, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. 
determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us. That's the Dunmore Proclamation. And to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Okay, so I think there are two important points to be to be made about this this passage. Number one is that it it I, I, there's no way that you can read this and not think that Jefferson believes that slavery is a crime against humanity, mm-hmm. right? I, and you know, I I think that you would come to that view even without this paragraph. So I mm-hmm. think that the you know all men are created equal um, means that, and that people at the time thought that it meant that. Yes, um, but I think that reading this paragraph, it, it's you know Jefferson is laying it on um, really thick. But but slavery is a crime against humanity according to the doctrine of the Declaration of Independence. That's right, and African descended people are human, and African American descend African descended people are human. Absolutely, yeah. I think that that that, and you can't understand the moral drama. Right? So I don't mean to when I say these things, I don't mean to defend Jefferson. Right, but you can't understand the moral drama of the early republic unless you understand that that he thinks that both of those things are true. Slavery is a crime against humanity, and African descended people are in fact human beings with natural rights. That's right. So, but um, the other point that that's also important, and I, and I wish that the sixteen nineteen project had made had made this point. Um, the the rhetorical thrust of this paragraph um, is to cast the blame for the institution of slavery in the American colonies back on the King of England, mm-hmm. right? It's to say, well, he foisted this whole institution on us. Right. He wouldn't let us stop. You know, he wouldn't allow us to stop the slave trade. Um, it was, it was, you know, that basically the moral agency here is back in England, not with the colonists in, in the United States. Right. And so he says, Tom, I'm just going to reread this part because this is where I, I think it happens. He is now exciting those very people, those enslaved people, to rise in arms among us. That's the Dunmore Proclamation. And to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them. So what Jefferson is saying, right, is that the king has has foisted these enslaved people on the American colonists, and now they're on the poor, innocent white people. Yes. Yeah, and and now there's this this race war sort of set up between yeah, potential race war, right? Correct. That that he's trying to foment um, with uh, by exciting those very people to rise in arms among us. Right now, and so this this does look like it's heading in the direction of what the 1619 project says. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. In the sense that, that that's the that's the claim is that the king of England is is exciting these enslaved peoples to rise up against their slave owners. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess the um, the thing that's you know in the context of Jefferson thinking that slavery is a crime against humanity, the thing that's so striking is that all of the moral responsibility lies on in other people's hands. Yes. Right. 
Um, and there, there's something that's strange about the way that this, if you, if you thought of this as something that was happening in a novel, yeah. there's been a reversal from the beginning of the document where you get this beautiful moment that all men are created equal. And it looks like natural rights, everyone's natural rights are compatible with each other. Mm -hmm. And sort of this proud assertion of we've got a right to rebel to hear when, if you think through what's really being said, I mean, the criticism of George is that he's getting the slaves to treat us like we're treating George the third. Right. Right. There's this strange mirroring between Jefferson and white Americans and the person that they claim to be overthrowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is borne out in the rhetoric of the period. There's no shortage of American colonists declaiming that they are being enslaved to Great Britain or enslaved to the crown, right? This is a, a pervasive part of the way that the American, the white American colonists thought about the political conflict with Great Britain. Yes, that's that's absolutely for sure. Is that the rhetoric and people recognize that the rhetoric was hypocritical, right? So right, famous, famously Samuel Johnson. Right, the famous Samuel Johnson line that why do we hear the greatest you know uh, yelps for liberty from the the drivers of slaves? Um, right. This was not a secret to anyone, right? Right. And I just I also want to just notice one thing about the paragraph that you that you read. Um, He's, Jefferson writes, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes that he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Uh-huh. Um, it's He presents it as though, well, there's going to be a race war and both sides are going to be innocent, right? Yeah. The slaves are fighting for their freedom, just like the doctrine of the Declaration of Independence says they should do. Yep. The, the white slave owners are fighting for their lives. They also have natural rights. Right. And I think from our point of view, you just want to shake him and say, like, wait a minute, don't don't you have any moral responsibility for this for the situation that you live in? Right. Don't right. white people in America have responsibility for this institution? I mean, can you it's just not plausible to say that the British are somehow bear the main responsibility for something that was so fundamental a part of the American society in 1776. Right. And by this time. Thomas Jefferson has reached an age of majority and has inherited the slaves that he will own for the rest of his life and never manumit. Is that right, Tom? Correct. That's okay. right. Which is about 180 people in the 1770s who live at Monticello. And so this rhetoric of slavery and this sort of like the the undetailed brushstrokes of this paragraph of the direct, of the declaration are a lived reality for the man who is writing the words. Yes, that's right. That, that, that he might well himself worry that some person reading, some enslaved person reading the Declaration of Independence might put those words into action. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all of Jefferson's moral fury against George III would be turned against himself. Right. And um, that's, that's, part of, that's part of the critique of this paragraph is that the King of England has made the American colonists into tyrants, just like George the third is. It's, it's so, I mean, it really is like a novel, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that somehow there's been this reversal King, the King George's worst crime. He's, he's hurt us economically. He's hurt us physically, but his worst crime is that he's made us into tyrants like himself. Right. Right. And you can understand why, like the uh, the other people on the committee are like, "Well, Thomas, maybe this isn't such a good idea to leave this in." Right? Do we know that much, Tom, about why this paragraph 
uh, didn't show up in the final copy. So Jefferson says in his autobiography, which is written much later in the 1820s, he says it's because of the um, representatives from South Carolina and Georgia mm-hmm. who are completely invested in slavery and don't want to hear any criticism of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suspect that there were also other people who were, um, you know, more on Jefferson's side and being anti-slavery who, who also thought that this was not such a good idea right. to put that in. That it looks, it, you know, it just, it's defensive, right? It, it doesn't, and it's not plausible, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the... Well, and the rhetorical purpose of the declaration is is to do what i mean this is we're looking at a propaganda document right well, it's a propaganda document that that articulates a principle that you know may may well be true right, right. But yes, and it's, it's, it's you, rallying the troops right so so thinking about it historically is to imagine jefferson articulating this high moral principle justifying it and then asking people to stake their lives on on the principle because the war is coming. Correct. Yeah. And so it's not just a work of political theory in the abstract, right? That that's and any time that you act politically, you have to make um, concessions, not to your enemies, but to your allies. And sometimes your allies are pretty creepy people. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, that's true in the American Revolution as it is anywhere else. Um, I think the but the, the the key that I would emphasize is that Jefferson has this sort of moral drama that's happening in the 1770s and the 1780s, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's more complicated. So so you know you might think from the controversy over 1619 that the the founders were either just bad guys or just good guys, yeah, but they're clearly both. Right. And Jefferson, you know, he says in many places, in many public places, that slavery is is what we would call a crime against humanity. Yeah. Um, and that that part, you just shouldn't let go. Right. That's that's part of our history. Our history has a lot of horrible things, but that's part of our history, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and go the, ahead. And the thing about Jefferson, too, is that his thinking about slavery changes over the course of his life. And well, it does, can I, can I just add a, a wrinkle to Jefferson so that, you know, I, I argue in my article that there are three stages. It's not my observation. It's somebody else. Um, other scholars have made that, but in, so we're, we're talking about Jefferson called phase one uh-huh. in the 1770s and the 1780s. Uh, so he writes this, this book notes on the state of Virginia. It's his only book. Right. And, and he is, um, he says some very, um, bad things about slavery. He says that, uh, you know, the famous passage, I tremble when I reflect that God is just, right. and that there's, he can't take our side. Like we are doing a crime when we keep people in slavery. Um, but I th- there, there's context there, right? Mm-hmm. And the, so he's, he's against slavery, um, but he's also um, what we would call a racist, right? I mean, you right. could be an anti-slavery person and also be a racist. Right. And the way that that comes up is um, when he thinks about what it would mean to end slavery, he can only imagine it as, uh, well, we would we would free the descendants of Africans who are currently kept in slavery, but they all have to leave immediately. Right. And this is the these are the colonization schemes that Jefferson and Madison and a lot of other. Yes. Yes. And the idea there is that enslaved African descended people would be freed and then they would be recolonized either somewhere further West on the North American continent or somewhere in Africa. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the idea. And, um, 
and and I, I think it's just important for us as as Americans to say the full truth here, right? Thomas Jefferson could not imagine a world in which he African descended people were full equals in a common endeavor, right? Right. And that that that's just um, that's just a fact about who he was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that it's uh, right alongside his opposition to slavery and his and his you know desire to end slavery. Mm-hmm. But um, but he, you know, that for whatever reason, his imagination didn't go that far. Yeah, and it's I think important to add that Jefferson is not alone among early anti-slavery sentiment in his racism. There are, are no shortage of you know, British anti-slavery thinkers and even abolitionist thinkers who were purveyors of racist ideas about African-descended people and could not imagine uh, a society where different races of human beings could live together and form a polity. And so whenever we think about this, this history, um, which is tied up pretty deeply in the, the history of scientific racism, it's important to think about how those pseudoscientific ideas and the political ideas were in, intermingled with one another. Uh, and, it's, and it's important to say, right, some of our listeners may be thinking, you know, well, those liberal academics, they, they tend to, you know, uh, shade everything in a certain way. Like Jefferson's, uh, what we call sometimes his scientific racism, is not like an ambiguous thing. No. <laughs> it's not a matter of interpretation. Like he he is saying, you know, that he he thinks that that for biological reasons, Africans African descended people are inferior to white people, right. and that it's there on the page. There is no way around that, and there's no accounting for Thomas Jefferson that doesn't acknowledge that. Right. And it was absolutely understood during the time that Jefferson believed these things about African descended people. So the uh, the free black scientist, polymath, Benjamin Banneker, writes to Jefferson explicitly in the 1790s, after reading notes on the state of Virginia, trying to convince him otherwise, trying to convince him out of his white supremacist ideas. And, you know, Banneker doesn't seem to have been successful with Jefferson, but it's clear that people understood Jefferson at the time as having these ideas as well. Yes, that that's right. And, and I think that, so, you know, the 1619 project people, they got the claim about the revolution wrong mm-hmm. and they got it wrong in a way that revealed that they, I think that they were um, trying to go for provocation or for something that, that was a mistake. But in a deeper way, there, there are things that, that are just true that are deeply problematic Right. About, about Jefferson and about, you know, many of the founders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, how to, how to articulate both that he was anti-slavery and that he was racist, right? That's, that would be the trick. Right. And that's, I think, an uh, idea that may be unfamiliar to, to people who don't, you know, maybe who don't study the 18th century or who do not, don't know, Jefferson's writings um, very intimately, because we think that anti-slavery and anti-racism would necessarily have a one-to-one correspondence with one another, right. and that's right. that's not the state of things on the ground. At the so, and I, I guess I should say, you know, when I when I teach this to students, and students always, I mean, they're, and I think that it, it does them credit that they are they're hurt by the hypocrisy, mm-hmm. right? They're angry at the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, because he says the things that they want to believe is true, that mm-hmm. all men are created equal. 
and that um, that you know it's sort of like you when you're let down by somebody that you loved and look up to, it's harder than when you're let down by just some common criminal. Yeah, um, well, and that I take to be one of the other virtues of the sixteen nineteen project, which is that it wants to you know take up inquiry about the founding that does not resort to celebratory stories about right. you know the rights of all humankind because that that just wasn't the state of things and the world we live in now is a result of the fact that that was not the state of things and and people people need to have ways of reckoning not just with the past but was reckoning with what's happening right now um and the you know, the ongoing presence of of racial injustice and, and racism in the country and i don't think we can understand it unless we think about you know this history in a more critical and complicated way yeah so so um you know just in the interest of time um i think that that uh we also, when we think about Jefferson or the other founders, we, we tend to assume that they had all the power in the world to, to make the world into what they thought it should be. Mm-hmm. But I think that we really misunderstand that, that um, they're one voice, but in a much larger world. And, and I, I look, I just think that most people in 1776 were not on board with ending slavery immediately or maybe ever, that, that, that there is a kind of um, nascent racism that was present in, in the country. Um, and that, that uh, even if Jefferson had made it his one you know, thing, there would have been lots of, lots of opposition. Um, and I also want, and this is, this is an important thing that we're not gonna have time to talk about, but um, there's not, the Declaration of Independence is a, is a single moment in a complicated history. Right. So Jefferson has a long period of time after the Declaration of Independence. And uh, we don't have time to go into the whole thing here. I do think if Jefferson had died in, if he'd you know, been struck by lightning mm-hmm. in 1790, mm-hmm. we would look back and say, look, this guy was this amazing, you know, there were some really tr- problematic things about scientific racism, but, but he was saying a lot of things about slavery that we still think are true. Right. And that the problem, like the deeper objection to Jefferson um, has has to do with what he does or what he doesn't do in the time period after that. Right. Right. And in 1790, he joins the new the, the new federal government, like the Washington administration. Mm-hmm. And around this time, he goes silent on the issue of slavery. Right. So this was something he talked about a lot in the 1770s and the 1780s. Or he's talked about somewhat in the 1780s. Um, yeah. And um, for, I think for political reasons, because he's part of a political coalition and, and um, he always thinks that, that, um, that he's engaged in a, this titanic fight with um, people that we would think of as fascists, right? Or that he thinks of as in the way that we would think of as fascists. And yeah. so he thinks he's fighting for the, the trying to save the American Republic and slavery gets put on the back burner because of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we don't, we shouldn't uh, try to open up that can of worms right now. Um, but, uh, and then, and then the story ends. And, and to me, it's an extremely disappointing way um, that Jefferson's, so that's phase two of Jefferson's career is, is his public silence for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, which are, I think are really the critical 30 years for the future of the, the, 
the Republic, uh, at least on this issue. Because the theory in the 1790s, or that some that some folks subscribed to, was that the institution of slavery would simply die out. Right. That and and it was wishful thinking. Look, they were they were progressives. They believe in progress. They think progress is is going to happen automatically. Mm-hmm. That it will this problem will take care of itself. Right. And right. And we were, know the problems don't take care of themselves. Right. 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 And there were you know, there were some there were some early state governments that that did pass abolition statutes. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, that was heavily influenced by Quaker abolitionism. You see these these uh, acts of uh, legislation that are designed to gradually abolish slavery. Uh, but that is not what happened in the southern states. Right. That's right. So in Virginia and points further south. So there is a real anti-slavery moment that is fueled by the ideas that you get in the Declaration of Independence. But mm-hmm. it's mostly in the north where there are not very big populations of enslaved persons. Right. And it peters out. And um, just to tell the story very quickly, by by 1820 and the time of the Missouri crisis, mm-hmm. I think that that the public opinion has shifted without anyone exactly realizing it, that people who um, realize, look, these colonization ideas are crazy, mm-hmm. they're not going to happen, and but we're also not going to get rid of slavery. So um, people in the South say, well, we're going to affirm it. Right. right? And, um, and Jefferson, he's part of that story. And, and maybe in another podcast, we'll talk about how that story plays out. Right. Because the Confederate States of America... Are, are formed in express repudiation to the equal rights doctrine of the Declaration. Right, that's right. So, so I guess the, the, the right way to think about, so I think Jefferson and I think the other founders messed up big time. And I think they left the country with this tremendous contradiction that and one obvious way of solving that was for the South to become the pro-slavery positively white supremacists. There are no other words that you can use for these things. Right. Um, that that was a response to the mess that Jefferson left. Right. And because, um, and because the problem of slavery had not been resolved by the declaration or by the constitution. So- or by the political deeds, right? Let's not forget. It's not, right. I mean, the constitution is not responsible for everything in, in American life. Well, and it's p- part of the, <laughs> Part of the story, right, is that the Constitution is silent on on these very questions. Right. We, that's another whole kettle. Of it's fish. a whole other podcast. Uh, it's a whole other podcast. But we should say, and I think this this is, you know, in a way, an ironic and sad um, judgment on on Jefferson, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's uh, his political coalition is the political coalition that's going to become the the. The South, right? The white right. supremacist South, right? States' rights plus slavery—that's that's the antebellum South. Um, in the antebellum period, the people who pick up the Declaration of Independence and talk about it, on the one hand, it's going to be people like Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. right, who say, "Look, you guys made this promise. You you articulated these principles, and you know full well that they mean that slaves should be free. The slaves and should no be human free." Being and that at this yeah. point now African-Americans are human and are characters of, of the natural rights that Jefferson described. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, so you get people like Douglas and in a different way, Lincoln mm-hmm. um, using the declaration as a battering ram against, um, against slavery. 
Right. On the other hand, uh, and this happens, you know, starts to happen in the 1820s, um, but you get uh, people who are um, the, the, the great spokesmen for the South, they realize that they've got to get rid of the Declaration of Independence if they're ever going to be able to um, have the kind of society that they want. Right. And so you get people like Calhoun, um, John Calhoun, right, the great um, politician from South Carolina, um, or Alexander Stevens, who becomes the vice president of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say explicitly, Thomas Jefferson got this wrong, the Declaration of Independence was wrong. Right. Right. And in a way, that's kind of like the, the, the best thing that you could say about the Declaration. They mm-hmm. realized that it was a threat to what they believed in. Mm-hmm. So while at the same time, leaving open the possibility that something like the Confederate States of America could come into being, a polity based on the, the human hierarchies implied by white supremacy, that government can come into being, and at the same time, the Declaration holds the, the doctrine um, that repudiates um, that, that particular way of, of organizing a polity. Right. I mean, I, I think about the, the role of the Declaration in, you know, this is very schematic, but if you, you remember that uh, famous line by Chekhov that, you know, if you if a playwright puts a, a, a loaded pistol okay. on the table yeah. in the first act of a play, it has to be, it has to go off by the last act of the play. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that loaded pistol was, was, you know, the words of the Declaration. That's not to say that the Declaration by itself could have done it, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was a question of the courage and sacrifice and the suffering of many, many human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was a kind of, um, you know, a kind of uh, flag that was able to be flown to say, this is this is our cause. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, when I think uh, about what the Declaration incites us to do, I, I think a lot about Daniel Allen's book on the Declaration. It's called Our Declaration. Um, and for right. folks who are listening, if you haven't read this book, um, maybe Tom, we should put the the biographical details. Um, yeah, we'll put a link in the uh, episode it's, description. It's really an important reading for for our times, probably for all times, but for our times of the Declaration and what we owe to one another. And Alan talks a lot about this notion of responsiveness and trying to use the Declaration as a model for listening to the political concerns of other people in an effort to establish a shared sense of what the political reality actually is. And in this era of deep polarization, accusations of fake news, social media, the, the whole deal, her reading of the Declaration is really powerful. I, I would even go so far as to say I found it comforting to, to think that there's still something we could use to talk to one another. Right, right. Of course, she's running for uh, office and in, in governor. I think she's to be governor of Massachusetts. She right is. Now, isn't yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the way that I think about this is, um, you know, the Declaration for, for whatever it was, and, and it was a, there were a lot of messy things that that are problematic, but it articulated principles. And when you articulate a principle, you know you do it in order to justify whatever it is that you want to do at the moment. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's why we why we use principles. 
But the thing about principles is that you don't get to say where they stop. Yeah. Right. You don't get to put it on a shelf and say it only goes this far and no farther. Right. Right. That it has a li- kind of a life of its own and it may lead you in places that you're not prepared to go. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the American founders were not prepared. Honestly, I don't think they were prepared to go where the declaration wanted to take them. Right. Right. Which in that, in that moment is the, the categorical application of, of the rights doctrine only to white people and probably more specifically to white landowning men. I mean, the franchise would be expanded uh, over the years, again, through the struggles of, of a lot of human beings who, who dedicated their lives to trying to make the promises of the declaration true. Um, but even at the time, right? I mean, they're not, they're not thinking about universal human rights. Well, they, they, I mean, they they are and they aren't right. I mean, they're not thinking it's a practical political thing. Um, but, uh, they, they sort of lay the marker down and the the markers there. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, just to go back to Jefferson for a moment, I mean, I guess I, you know, uh, and I say this in, in admiration of the founders, um, or partial admiration, but there, there's some deep way that, that, um, they messed up, right. They, Mm -hmm. they left a problem that they, they couldn't solve and that, that they didn't, they were blind, right. They didn't realize what they were doing. Um, and I think that's just like a chastening lesson for us that, that needs to be remembered, right. Both Mm -hmm. the, the problems, but also the, as it were, the tragedy of the way that they undermine their own project. Mm -hmm. And Tom, whenever you teach the declaration to students and and you you sort of hand them this, this big idea and all of its problems, how, how do you encourage them to take hold of it? And and like, what, what should we do with this text as educators? Uh, So I guess the the way that I think about this is, um, it might sound like a paradox, but to criticize somebody is an expression of respect for their dignity as human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to criticize Thomas Jefferson or to criticize the the founders for things that they did that um, were either mistakes or that turned into mistakes, Mm -hmm. I I, I think that's the the model for, like, that's the best that we can do. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and that, that you are, even when you're trying to overthrow the declaration in a way, you're reenacting it. Right. Right. Um, that's how I think about it. Yeah. Well, in a, in a sense too, I mean, that, that takes us up all the way to the current moment where maybe there's not a widespread critique of the declaration or that's not really what school children are doing, but the 1619 project is trying to mount those kinds of critiques and create those kinds of conversations. Um, and in turn critiquing the 1619 project is also part of the work. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, it's, um, and so I, I guess we should, um, wrap this up by, by just saying, you know, the 1619 project that, that it was doing something like in a way like the American founding was trying to do something that was good. And obviously, you know, we're, these things are not parallel really in any way, but, um, you know, they, they messed up in certain ways and that's, that's the condition of human life. And, you know, we all move on, mm-hmm. but our job is to somehow try to say the truth about, about both the founding, but also about what's happening in front of us. 
Right. And the importance of talking to one another and listening to each other when we, we try to find that, that true thing is, is something that the declaration underscores. It's, I think something that the ongoing conversation now about the 1619 project can help us to take part in uh, and to, to keep asking the questions. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, and I think especially on this topic, I think it's, it's just, um, this is the hardest thing in a way for us to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and because it's been so hard historically, because it hasn't been talked about, the necessity is overwhelming. We are, I, I think it's pretty clear that we've reached some kind of crisis point uh, in the in the national consciousness on the question of race, and and we've got to we've got to come to the question. Right. Well, so I, I suspect there are you know two or three other podcasts that we could have about I think, this. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, we haven't really gotten to talk a lot about this, the particular interventions that Jefferson made with, with regard to the Missouri crisis. And I think it's really important for folks to think about the relationship between the declaration, the founding of the United States and, and the, the political tensions that built toward the civil war. So perhaps we can, we can do that as a later conversation. Yeah. And I I would even say that how, um, you know, that the slaveocracy, like the regime of white supremacy, um, came out of the the failures of the American founding. Right. 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 uh, So that's maybe a topic for another day. I don't know. I hope that's provocative enough to not be. I think so. I think that's something folks will want to listen to. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, we're going to call call it quits here. Um, but uh, thanks for, for talking to me about this. And we look forward to hearing from our listeners. If you have questions, then you can send them to us at politicsandthehumanities at gmail.com. And uh, if you send us questions, we'll read them on the air. Uh, so if that's an incentive, I, I hope so. Yeah, please but, let uh, us know if you if you want to join the conversation. We can, we can get your words themselves right here in, in the mix. <laughs> All, all four listeners will be able to hear you. <laughs> Robust conversation. That's right. Okay, Sarah, it's been fun. I'll see you next time. Thanks, Tom. Bye, y'all. Bye.